you are tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where industry leaders, regulators, and lovers of cannabis gather collectively to move policy forward in an inclusive and sustainable way. Professionals and Canacurious alike can tune in to hear leading cannabis experts share and discuss headlines, critical industry issues, social topics, and more. The State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. Hi, and welcome to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where we bring you all the top stories you need to know and talk about them for four minutes and 20 seconds. We are a group of experts in different cannabis spaces with a wide diversity of perspectives and life experiences. Our news is bite-sized and infused with a nice mix of facts, opinions, and a pinch of humor. It's Tuesday, March 29th, 2022. This is episode number 246. I'm Susan Sores, the founder of the State of Cannabis News Hour, author of the children's book, What's Growing in Grandma's Garden, and Cannabis's Favorite Grandma, AKA Nanogram. If you're listening to the podcast or watching on the YouTube channel, the show is live every weekday at 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time on Clubhouse. Spark it up with us and over 28,000 State of Cannabis News Hour members if you want to be an audience participant. Otherwise, please subscribe to support our show. We'd love to hear from you, so please leave us a review. Today we're talking about Vermont begins retail rollout, Austin first responders may be able to use medical cannabis, CDFW and environmental violations, a citywide festival in San Francisco, an update on cannabis laws in Thailand, amendments to the federal cannabis legalization bill, and many other frosty nuggets. So stay tuned for the full hour of the State of Cannabis News Hour. The following program contains coarse language and nudity. Viewer discretion is advised. Audience, feel free to raise your hands if you want to weigh in on a headline after it's been read, and we'll try to bring you up to the stage. Keep it brief and relevant, or you might get the gong. Starting off the show today is golden-voiced Lara DeCaro. She's a, de- a staunch defender of LGBTQ rights, able to mediate and practice law in three states. Lara is a valuable voice for the State of Cannabis News Hour and is lending her skills as a valued co-producer and moderator. What's up, Silky Smooth? Hey, hey, hey. Good morning, everyone, or, or good afternoon, I guess depending on where you are. Thanks so much for that, Susan. My story is out of Vermont. It is Vermont Begins Retail Cannabis Rollout. It's it's a little bit of a misnomer because they're really rolling out everything, but um, the story is by Sid Bellway, a reporter for NBC5 out of Burlington. Uh, apparently last week, Governor Phil Scott signed the bill which set up the fees and regulations for retail cannabis. So this week, the Vermont Cannabis Control Board wasted no time in holding a meeting uh, with constituents to help begin rolling out their plan. The Cannabis Control Board, or CCB, as it's referred to in Vermont, says they have already received 395 applications for pre-qualification, which 
you don't have to undergo in order to be eligible for full licensure. I was looking at their website. Um, when the relevant application window officially opens for a specific license type, you'll just sort of still be in queue. It is not a license to operate. It doesn't impact your license priority. Um, it costs $500, which they weren't actually able to accept until the governor signed this bill. So I'm not entirely sure why they started this, maybe just to get an idea of how many people were going to be applying. But anyway, um, they're planning on launching an online portal for applications starting on April 1st. So get your applications ready, folks out there. Um, the way that this works is that license applications for integrated license types, like what we call a micro license in California, small cultivators and testing labs will be accepted. May 1st, licenses uh, for integrated licenses of a larger scale, small cultivators and testing lab laboratories will begin to be issued. So they're, they're going to turn around these licenses in hopefully 30 days. I don't know. And license applications for all cultivations will also be accepted. And they sort of roll out like that until October 1st when they'll start issuing licenses for retailers. It's a really interesting plan. I think it's just designed to keep them from being completely overwhelmed. It's definitely not designed to give any particular license type um, or size of license type, any kind of leg up. Um, but they are saying that first social equity groups, which include black and Latino owned businesses or businesses where the owners can show that they've experienced a disproportionate impact from previous cannabis regulations will go first. They say this, but according to the CCB website, the social equity applicant criteria have yet to be formally adopted. Um, they're still working on recommendations. Second, the expedited tier will include minority groups such as women-owned or LGBTQ-owned businesses. And then the third group is everybody else. There's no cap on licenses yet, um, but there might be one. And the CCB is holding a, a comment uh, a meeting on March 29th. If you're in Vermont, I, I highly recommend you attend and consider commenting. Um, the interesting thing about this is that a municipality in Vermont needs to opt in to host retail cannabis, but all other license types cannot be prohibited by ordinance. Um, from the from the story, what I found truly horrifying, <laughs> if you watch the video, is that they show what looks to be people licking pre-rolls and packing them for resale with one guy wearing some Colorado shirt. So who knows when or where this photo this video, um, video footage was taken, but it was definitely made me cringe. Anyway, my name is Laura DiCarlo, reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. And if we have anyone from Vermont, I'd love to hear your thoughts on, on the game plan of rolling this out. Hey, Laura, Roz here. I, I will tell you this, that we've been in conversation with Vermont Normal, and they've really um, spent a lot of time in, in getting our feedback and asking for, and when I mean ours, from minorities for medical marijuana, about what the social equity should look like in Vermont. I didn't realize there was black and brown folks in Vermont or a number of, but um, they really have been putting out a, a major effort to connect the dots there. Um, so I'm hoping there's no caps, that they leave it that way. And if we need to quickly, if anybody's from Vermont, if you know someone from Vermont, attend that meeting and make comment on the 29th. So I, I'm thankful for the story. Thanks, yeah, Laura. absolutely. Do you have um, public comment or at least um, maybe, you know, proposed draft comment available on your website that 
people might be able to turn Absolutely. To. If you go to our website and go to our policy, um, so m4mmunited.org, we have a, a brand new policy brief um, for 2022 with recommendations. Go to the state section, and there's some social equity um, language in there. And then we also can get you access to our national policy director who would love to um, um, supply comments or give you at least some guidance. And we'll try to attend, but um, I think people are sleeping on states like Vermont. Um, I went there for a retreat last year with, um, with, uh, that was supported by Cureleaf, and I was just blown away of how beautiful the state is and the people. And you know what? And they smoke weed, man, and they want to, you know, and they want quality. And I think it could be a, a great place for a nice, you know, you know, a craft type of retailer or grower. I mean, it was, it was a really nice state, really nice. Laura, I'm just wondering, um, since when did anyone die from saliva on oh, it's weed? It's gross. Gross. I just want to say that Vermont is known for having some great cannabis. As somebody who went to college in Maine, um, Burlington is notorious for it. So you can definitely get some stuff uh, from the neighborhood guy, and hopefully the cannabis on the market will match that quality. Roz, I want to. I wanted to ask you why. Why is I? I think it, I might know, but why is it good to have no caps? So the no caps is like, for example, Oklahoma is a, a no cap type of state. So if you have the opportunity to let the market dictate itself um, and allowing people to apply for a license based upon their municipality, where they're located, based upon their specialization, and you don't put caps on it, I just think it gives us an opportunity to not have barriers like having X amount of dollars in the bank. And look at look at Illinois. They put a cap of 75 licenses for their first round of dispensaries. And it's a mess in regards to this whole lottery and putting balls in the in the lottery. So the more money that you have to put a ball in the lottery, the more chances that you get to win a license versus someone who really knows their community, who really knows what's going on. And they're like, I can be an asset to this community. And no caps means, so no caps at the state level means that the local level can then decide on how many dispensaries we're going to have in our in our township. And I think it should be that way versus the state saying it's only going to be, you know, 10 dispensaries for the whole entire state. So you're telling me that you think that Oklahoma is not a bigger mess than than Illinois. You know what? Oklahoma has a, a issue with there might be more supply than demand. You might have a lot of competition that's going on. But might, I'll take might. Well, hold on, Jason. Calm down. I will take competition and open market and fair trade and, and the ability for people to go, get in. You figure out how to be able to differentiate yourself than an Illinois market where you don't even have a chance. Those people that did apply still haven't gotten a license, and you're having people that do very deceptive things in order to try to gain the system. And that's what happens with lotteries and with caps. Yeah. No, no caps evens the playing field. I mean, I'm not going to argue that Oklahoma is a good situation. There's an abundance of licenses there. There's an abundance of product there. But at least anybody could enter the market there and attempt to compete. When you artificially limit the amount of licenses by law in the state, it's a huge windfall to people with money. It's a huge first mover advantage to those parties. And it's hard to recover from that. Illinois might not be the shit show that Oklahoma is, but there are plenty of applicants that feel burned, that feel slighted, and there's tons of litigation related to it. At least an open marketplace avoids some of that contentious litigation. Yeah, absolutely. The same thing, you know, played out in Nevada when they limited to the 
um, for the counties, the number of um, retailers authorized. I was involved with the NACB uh, in the <clears throat> early development of all of these uh, rules as Vermont uh, looked at and reordered and reorganized themselves for this uh, for this launch. And they uh, started out right from the beginning, very pro MSOs, uh, very anti home grow. I mean, in one meeting, just ridiculously saying that they didn't want to do home grow because the uh, duration of the season was so short and they didn't think that it it was a good idea to have people who were already disabled trying to drag their plants from one sunny part of their yard to another. It was the most ridiculous, paternalistic, silly conversation I've ever had about home growth. And I, and I ended up being taken off the committees fairly early because it was just so ludicrous, really. That's incredible. That is incredible. I, I want to know where Bernie's going to shop. That's cute. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you for that story, Laura. That's uh, really interesting. And welcome to the jungle, Vermont. Um, up next is co-producer Jason Beck. Jason has been with the show since day one <clears throat> and contributes his provocative spin that keeps the show popping. He has proven to be one of the most resilient players in the weed game since starting the first ever store in San Francisco. His Midas Touch is going to take the state of Cannabis News Hour to the next level. What's your headline today, Jason? Oh, good morning, Susan. Thank you for that amazing introduction and happy Tuesday, everybody. Today, my story comes out of Michigan, where several local municipalities to receive funding from Marijuana Revenues Sharing Program. That's right. It's one big slush fund of tax revenue for marijuana sharing. The marijuana industry is estimated to have brought in over $3 billion with a B in Michigan in 2020. And now the state is sharing some of that revenue with municipalities across the state, including Mids, Michigan. That's right, Mids, Michigan. The marijuana revenue sharing program allows municipalities that have licensed marijuana businesses to get a portion of the tax collected from the companies that sell it. In 2021, taxes on marijuana in Michigan <coughs> excuse me, total more than $172 million, which will be derived up and distributed to counties and cities that have marijuana retailers like Ingham County, Lansing, and East Lansing. The amount that's distributed is based off how many retailers exist in that municipality. Ingram County is getting the lion's share of the revenue sharing uh, in the area with over $1 million coming in. That's because the county has a total of 19 marijuana retailers County Controller Greg Todd says some of the money will be used for a new diversity, equity, and inclusion officer. We've hired a new director recently, and the funding for that position is coming out of the funds that we just received from the marijuana tax, said Todd. The city of East Lansing has three marijuana retailers and is getting just over $169,000. Mayor Ron Bacon uh, says some of their money was used for social justice initiatives in the past, and leaders may look to do that again. We took some of that money and did some stuff in our B, our, in our 54 B courts around expungement. Some things bring some equality and social justice to people and who were most impacted by the drug laws, that, that, that type of thing, said Bacon. And Lansing, which has 16 marijuana retailers, is getting over $900,000, but city officials expect that payout to grow exponentially in the coming years. We have 16 additional licenses that are coming online. So it was 16 as of September 30th. We have another 12 uh, provisioning centers and another four micro businesses that would be eligible for both Lansing and Ingram County to receive 
that share in future years, said Lansing City Clerk Chris Swope. Swope says City Council is expected to vote soon on some zoning changes that will allow existing marijuana businesses to expand, which will increase revenue down the line and make the city more attractive to other cannabis companies. Well, I'll tell you what, Michigan, you got a lot of money to deal out and, you know, um, tell about in how you spend it and what you spend it on, not in just giving the money and, and trying to make everything sound good and look good by putting makeup on a pig. And this is Jason Beck reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Don't get addicted to that cannabis money. <laughs> well, I, I think, you know, again, the, the role of that social equity director and, you know, what's the outcomes. One thing that I'm looking at is sometimes we have these, um, we put individuals in roles about that are related to social equity or, you know, in, in evening out the playing field or what have you. However, there's no real KPIs. There's no real outcomes. Um, also, you know, you want to be able to have a check and balance. I'm not saying to micromanage, but also if funds are going towards an entity or a person that's going to be the director, give that person some clear direction as to what they're supposed to be doing, how they're supposed to be managing it, make sure that there is some type of oversight so that you get good outcomes. Um, it's not just less money to just throw it around. It's for, for people that have been disproportionately impacted and not just for the one or two that are able to, you know, gain from it and go from there. So that's just my concern. Um, try not, now I'm not trying to be a, a negative Nelly, but you know, it's just, it needs to be, have a little bit of oversight. I'm with you, Roz. There needs to be major oversight on this, and there needs to be a clear action plan set out, so then that way there's measurable milestones with how this money is spent and continues to be spent. I agree. I agree. And that goes along with every any other social equity program that's out there, be it from a cannabis company, from a municipality, or what have you. You know, I've seen so many people that have gone into positions on the cannabis company side to run a social equity program for a cannabis company, and they're there for six months and gone because there's no clear outline of what you're supposed to be doing, who's doing what, um, you know, how, how do we, how are our goals getting accomplished? What it, you know, we don't even know what your, our goals are. And so I just think, you know, giving people some direction is not a bad thing. Are you referring to LA right there, Ross? No, I'm not, but uh, I'm, I'll just, I'll be quiet on that one. But I'm just, anybody that's out there, if you're running a company, if you're looking to hire someone, Give them some, you know, give them some rope, give them some latitude, but figure out what are the key performance indicators that you want to achieve? What's your outcomes? What are you, I mean, who are you touching? How many times are you touching it? What are you, what are you looking to do? It's not a slush fund. It's not, and, and you know what, when we take social equity and funds that are generated from the, from the revenue generated from cannabis, and we just kind of like throw it out there and have nothing that measures what we're doing. It's a discredit to people that have been this, um, that have been impacted, who really do deserve to have a, a hand up. And some of these people do not, a lot of these people do not want to be in cannabis. They want to see their dream supported, and it doesn't always have to be a cannabis-related dream. And if you're an elected official, seriously, do not get addicted to cannabis money. It's it's just so funny to me. In Santa Barbara County, they're like, oh, no, our revenue is down by millions of dollars. It's Yeah, it's going to fluctuate. So, yeah. It, it's not going to be a constant stream of cash. It's way too late for yeah, these elected officials to not be addicted to the cash flow of cannabis cash. Yeah, that goes both ways. I'm glad you said that, Susan. That's for other programs, too. Like, that that whole thing where other programs that are outside of, that are getting funded, and now you've now taken funds that you normally would get elsewhere, and you counted on cannabis to now support your, your program, I think needs to be checked as well. All right, let's keep smoking the news. Oh, yeah. Good. All right. Here we go, guys. 
All right, so I got my first introduction going on today. I hope you guys are all revved up and ready to roll because coming up to the stage next, we have Eric Hess-Lareda. He's an award-winning journalist with a multicultural background and fifth-generation Californian known as a freeding fighting farmer's friend. This writer, brand consultant, event promoter, and content ninja does it all in the name of uncovering the international truths the lamestream media does not want you to see. Eric Lesserada, what you got for us today, guy? Jason, that was pretty lit, man. Uh, hey, everybody, great uh, to be here today. My headline is from the San Francisco Business Times, and it's SF launches new festival celebrating local cannabis culture. I'm going to jump right in here to the article, um, quoting a variety of San Francisco trade organizations are hoping one of a kind, one kind of green will lead to another with the launch of a new multi-day cannabis festival next month in time for the 420 holiday. The April 16 to 24 event, dubbed Evergreen San Francisco, will involve special promotions from several dozen cannabis dispensaries and lounges and immersive experiences, including a 420-themed scavenger hunt and historical tours celebrating the Bay Area's history of cannabis activism. The city's tourism bureau, SF Travel, is pouncing on the chance to drive more regional tourism dollars into the city, creating a website with inspiration for cannabis-themed day trippers. As the city emerges from the pandemic, it seems only fitting that we celebrate that which makes San Francisco unique and diverse, said Joe DeLisandro, president and CEO of San Francisco Travel, in a joint press release with other trade organizations behind the event. Cannabis tourism has the potential to grow exponentially. With the launch of Evergreen San Francisco, the city continues to be a trendsetter in the industry. On April 20, San Franciscans and plenty of onlookers will commence their annual gathering at Hippie Hill and Golden Gate Park to celebrate the right to use cannabis with music and event programming running from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. that day. At Fisherman's Wharf on April 23, writer Aaliyah Voles will look, uh, host a book signing of Home Baked, My Mom, Marijuana, and the Stoning of San Francisco, an autobiograph uh, autobiographical account of Cannabis Crusaders. Uh, amid the city's AIDS crisis in the 1980s. The nine-day celebratory promotion was developed by SF Travel, the San Francisco Chamber of Commerce, the city's Cannabis Retailers Alliance, Fisherman's Wharf Community Benefit District, and the San Francisco Cannabis Equity Group. I'm just going to interject a personal observation here. As I've said before, we ain't waiting for D.C. to get their shit together and do the right thing. It's on in California. We've got plenty of examples of how things continue to move ahead here. We already have $140 billion a year tourism industry, and now we're adding weed tourism to our highly developed travel product. Part and parcel of these experiences, the opportunity for brands, big and small, to interact directly with consumers. That puts money right into the pocket of local cannabis pros and allied businesses here in California. Um, back to the article, Evergreen San Francisco speaks to cannabis's place in our economy and history, said Rodney Fong, executive director of the city's Chamber of Commerce. The cannabis industry is as iconic to San Francisco as the Golden Gate Bridge, cable cars, and Fisherman's Wharf. I would say name another, another uh, state in the country that has a head of the Chamber of Commerce of a major metro area speaking like that about cannabis. And that's what I've got for today. I'm Eric for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Gracias for having me up. I've never been to this event. Has anyone been no, to this No, this is new. Before? This is brand new. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, it's brand new. We only, the Office of Cannabis in San Francisco has only officially recognized eight other events as being eligible to, to sell cannabis. So this is... This is really new. I, I want to say um, I, I really appreciate the Chamber of Commerce and their support for the cannabis industry. I, at full disclosure, I'm on the Public Policy Committee for the San Francisco Chamber of Commerce, and um, 
they've been nothing but supportive in all of our efforts. Yeah, it's so cool to see SF Travel. I mean, that is their big, you know, that's the cable car guys. You know, that's the, you know, the people doing the usual stuff. And here they're pivoting hugely into cannabis. Yeah. This is really big. I mean, this is, you know, this is a major metro area just going full. Yeah, that's the know. hotel. That's the hotel association. Yeah, Essentially, absolutely. those the book all of the, the, the hotels for the big events. They work really closely with Moscone Center, a big convention center in San Francisco. Uh, yeah, it's huge that they're on board. It's great. Isn't that the same firm that markets rice aroni as well? No, people in San Francisco don't eat rice aroni, dude. <laughs> I hope other uh, California cities decide to uh, compete with week-long cannabis celebrations, whether they're in or around 420 or not. Yeah, one day ain't enough, man. We need a whole I week. Agree. Yeah, come on, Los Angeles. Come on, Long Beach. Yay, San Francisco. Up next is Santa Barbara-based cannabis educator and brand strategist Liz Rogan. She's an important link in California's largest cultivation center and an important link for the show. Keeping the links on our news pinned makes Liz our pinner, but don't be confused because when she rolls a joint, it's always a fatty. What you got, Liz? Thank you so much, Susan. Happy Token Up Tuesday, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. My story comes from the Coast News Inland Edition. It's by Jacqueline Covey. The headline reads, Vista Cleanup Ordinance Returns Tax Funds to Cannabis Businesses. So I feel like I had a great story to share with you guys. You actually may get some tax money back. So in Vista, California, voters passed Measure AA in 2018. But several sections in the Cannabis Business Tax Code were left out for later consideration, specifically related to refunds, apportionment, and appeals. So in addition to the state's 15% excise tax on distribution, Vista has cultivation tax at $14 per square foot and gross receipts of cannabis businesses, 6% on manufacturing distribution, 7% on medicinal retail, 7% sorry, 7% on adult use retail, and 1% on testing. Non-cannabis-related products are not taxed at the same rates, and not all points of sale can differentiate between these items. In its annual audit, the city found several instances of miscalculated tax payments from cannabis businesses. Many had overpaid the city, but there were some underpayments. The ordinance adopted last week includes adding language to the city code, specifically focusing on debt, deficiencies, and assessments, refunds, apportionment, and appeals. So any cannabis business can file an appeal of any tax, interest, or penalty with the city clerk within 15 days of the due date. Want to note that cannabis businesses in Vista have to pay a monthly tax bill. But at the time, uh, a public hearing will be set, preceded by consideration and destination by the council. But the ordinance does allow the city to impose a 25% penalty if nonpayment cannot be resolved. According to Vista City Attorney David Pieper, the measure in, quote, the measure intended the mechanics of the tax would be observed and later enacted on by the council. Now that we've had a couple of years of actual operations, we are in need of having some of those mechanics set forward. Vista dispensaries, uh, Flora Vista, it's a dispensary, one of the first approved there, co-owner Justin Christman said they intentionally overpaid. He said it's a technological mess, an accounting mess, and it's an absolute nightmare. He says the reason we overpaid is because we chose to err on the side of caution, because not a lot of this is clearly spelled out. And Councilman Joe Green of District 2 says, in speaking with a couple of business owners, I know they've been excited. There's an appeals process. So if there's any dispute on accounting between our audit and the numbers that the businesses have, we actually have a process for it. 
So tax money returned, like, oh my goodness, I felt like this was a very exciting story, though I don't know if it's actually going to like play out very much for people. So this is Liz Rogan reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. I would love to hear what you guys think about this. I would love to see a spreadsheet with all of the cities in California and with all of the, the different taxes. I'm sure it would just be mind boggling. Well, I'd like to see that spreadsheet, but I'd like to see all of the taxes combined into just one number, whether that be a, a tax on, on consumers that are purchasing, whether that be a local cultivation tax as well as a local manufacturing tax and distribution tax, all combined so people can see what it shit really is. They didn't mention in the legislation who would have to pay for the appeal, so I'm assuming that's probably the business owner. And then, unfortunately, the non-payment, the penalty that they have, if you can't resolve it, is a 25% penalty, so that's pretty huge. I wonder if they're actually going to get any money back. Do you guys think they will? I doubt it. I doubt it, yeah. I'm not going to hold my breath for that one. Bummer. I was, like, hoping this would... <laughs> we could follow the money back to the cannabis businesses. Well, I'll keep hoping. Keep hope alive, Liz. And coming up next, we have Brandon Dorsky, repping Long Beach, California Heavy. Our next correspondent is the CEO of Fruits Labs, a cannabis intellectual property attorney, and no amount of springtime Southern California rain can stop this man's vibes. Coming next to the stage, we have Brandon Dorsky. Thanks so much for that wonderful introduction, Jason. Today, my headline comes from Ma360. It's New Mexico strikes cannabis deals with Native American group. Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham signed intergovernmental agreements with two federally recognized Native American communities to support cannabis production and sale on tribal lands within the state of New Mexico. Because the production and sale will occur on tribal lands, the federal government is more restricted in its ability to interfere. Pueblo of Pacaris Governor Craig Quanchello and I apologize if I mispronounce, and Pueblo of Pohaki Governor Janelle Roybal joined the New Mexico governor in celebrating these arrangements. Under New Mexico's Cannabis Regulation Act, the state's Cannabis Control Division was allowed to make deals with tribal governments on recreational cannabis production. These intergovernmental agreements between the state and Pueblos require regular meetings for the state and tribes to coordinate and consult on the production of cannabis and also requires New Mexico to incorporate tribal policies into the state's cannabis plans. Roy Ball was quoted as saying, We're very satisfied with this intergovernmental agreement and our ability to work together with the department on this collaborative effort to maintain a robust regulatory environment for cannabis. Uh, the full text of the intergovernmental agreements was not available for review. And these agreements are the product of New Mexico's legalization movement, where New Mexico legalized adult use about a year ago, in April 2021. The agreements will ensure that tribal cannabis will meet the same standards as cannabis produced outside of tribal lands, and that cannabis will be accessible both on tribal lands and within the state of New Mexico. Uh, there wasn't a lot of other juice in the article, but it was really exciting to see New Mexico make this move and embrace the uh, tribes that have land there and the notion of less interference because all of this activity is having a, ha happening on tribal land, I think is great. And I think it's a great strategy and might prove to make New Mexico a very interesting market uh, whenever federal legalization happens and perhaps they put a lot of restrictions on what you can do under federal law when it's not on tribal land. This is Brandon Dorsky reporting for the State of Cannabis News. 
There's another article in the news today about New Mexico, and it's from uh, Las Cruces Sun-Times, and the headline is, Growing Cannabis for Commercial Sale in New Mexico? Don't Plan on Using Rio Grande Water. So it looks like water is going to be a big issue there. Yeah, water's always an issue in New Mexico. I mean, coming, so you didn't totally slaughter the wards, but, you you know, Brandon, you, thanks for being cognizant of this. Powake, you actually did a pretty good job at the Powake Pueblo and the Pecurious people. But it was, um, uh, it, you know, I grew up next to Taos Pueblo, and um, you know, they uh, that is the oldest apartment building in the world. Um, they kind of have some first-in-time water rights, so I'd be interested to see how the water rights play out for them. Yeah, water rights aside, which is a problem for all of us in the West, I'm just really happy to see this. Thanks for bringing that, Brandon. But to see, you know, indigenous people um, have, get really integrated into our industry is critical because they're, you know, they're as the first uh, people here, they have just taken such hits across our entire country to see, to see that articulated and then brought into, especially here in California, we need to do a better job. But I think across the country, um, I hope this just increases. I actually agree with you on that 100%, Eric. Ring a bell, man. All right, all right. We have to have some celebratory music for these kind of events. Susan. Yes, okay. Mark it on your calendars, everybody. <laughs> it happened. All right, we, uh, we need to relight this room really quickly. You are tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. The thoughts and opinions expressed in the State of Cannabis News Hour are those of the individual speakers, not those of any other speaker, the State of Cannabis, or its members. The statements made in the State of Cannabis News Hour do not constitute legal or accounting advice, and the State of Cannabis and its speakers make no representation regarding the legal status of any substance in any country, area, or territory, or any other authorities. The views expressed in this room do not establish any fiduciary relationships. The sponsorship of the State of Cannabis News Hour do not imply or constitute any endorsement by the State of Cannabis or the expressions of any of the opinions whatsoever on the part of the State of Cannabis or any of its speakers. Viewer discretion advised. If you missed the beginning of the show, make sure to catch the replay or find us a few hours after the show anywhere you get your podcasts or on our YouTube channel. And if you like the content, please subscribe and leave us a killer review. So up next, we've got Shalina Panu. She is an attorney at law focusing on cannabis, entertainment, and psychedelics. She's also the founder of cannabis blog and podcast, Shall We Talk? What you got today, Shalina? Thank you so much, Susan. Good morning, everyone. My name is Shalina, and my headline for today is, Is Cannabis Actually Legal in Thailand? According to CNN, Thailand became the first Southeast Asian country to legalize cannabis for medical and research purposes in 2018. In January 2022, the Narcotics Control Board in Thailand said they plan to remove cannabis from its Category 5 control substance list, which would allow for growing at home for personal use only after one notifies a local government. What is clearly discriminatory and confusing regarding these laws is that Thailand's health ministry will still classify any part of the cannabis plant that is over 0.2% of THC as a controlled substance and is thus not considered legal. According to Lexology, under the current regulations, Thailand locals have a head start while foreign investors and entrepreneurs have an extra barrier before engaging in cannabis commercial activities. Restrictions are placed on licenses and private foreign companies who are currently not allowed to directly participate in cannabis commercial activities until February 19, 2024. Thailand locals are companies that are domiciled in Thailand with the majority of Thailand directorship are the selected few groups who are able to participate in activities involving industrial hemp for commercial or research purposes. Foreign operators, on the other hand, still face tough screening processes. 
Thailand authorities will look into the investors' backgrounds and operation plans, review title deeds, and check security and safety procedures. There's also a prohibition on hemp importation for processing, and there are limits on uses of hemp derivatives. Foreigners who wish to seize in on the green rush in Thailand entered into potential partnerships with what they believed to be authorized partners, only to find out it was a scam. This led to them giving tremendous upfront payments to obtain licenses and build cultivation facilities. Further, some did the bait and switch where after payments were received, the crop was changed from cannabis to ginger or turmeric. There have been tons of scams on locals as well, such as misinformed farmers growing cannabis illegally by paying upfront sub-licenses fees or being mis misled by companies to be used as a proof of concept in order to trick investors. As reported by iNews, since these recent changes of law between 2018 and 2022, a safe way to enter into the cannabis market within Thailand seems to be the CBD, CBD route or by using other cannabinoids. CBD-infused drinks and foods have seen a huge boom in tourist hotspots like Bangkok, where some restaurants offer a cannabis-infused sushi set menu while another offers vegan CBD brownies. What are your thoughts on Thailand's current and proposed cannabis laws? My name is Shlaine, and I'm reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Didn't, isn't Cookies already thinking about or talked about or put something out that they were going to Thailand? I haven't heard that, but I don't know if anyone else has. I could have sworn I saw something where they had like a mock-up of their their area. I had a guy, listen, I had this guy, and if you think about Thailand, there's the mainland Thailand, and then you have, there's a piece of the peninsula, it's the beach resort area, it goes out into um, um, to that big body of water. It's not the Indian Ocean, but it's, a, it's like a, a bay or what have you. And he was saying that there's a lot of resorts that are looking, you have to be, you have to create like a medical wellness um, center inside the resort in order to sell cannabis there. But he believes that there's going to be a high demand. And he actually approached me about my brand. And I was just like, um, um, so he's looking at going through Canada and then go and then using um, opportunities to Thailand. I don't know, you know, if he was legit or not, but he did contact me. It's unfortunate to hear that there's these scams going on. I love Thailand, and <clears throat> one of the things that's so interesting about it is that there, there are so many entrepreneurs. You know, everybody's got to create their own job, and um, I just I, th I think that they would do a fabulous job with the edibles. The other thing is they have so much international tourism that people from all over the world, so Europe, um, U.S., Asia, Asia itself. But it, So with all this international tourism, you can really launch brands. You can really kind of create trends because, you ha again, you have so much international traffic going through there. Yeah, I think that's what the guy was – he was kind of speaking towards, and that's why he was focused on – the resort, the beach resort, and those resorts that are, it was like an independent resort, like, you know, maybe like 50, um, like a bed and breakfast or what have you, and they were trying to put something there. But it'll be interesting to find out. I, I'm sure that the market would cater towards those tourists who are coming there for vacation. I love how all of these companies are going to exploit all these uh, third world countries and just build, putting resorts um, for Europeans and Americans and whatnot, instead of actually creating some, uh, some some viable businesses that the local communities can benefit off of. Let's keep smoking the news. Oh, yeah. Coming up next, we got Roz McCarthy. She's a Florida-based entrepreneurial entrepreneurial leading the charge for the ultimate cannabis lifestyle brand, the Black Buddha Cannabis. Also the founder and CEO of Minorities for Medical Marijuana coming to the stage next. It's Roz McCarthy. 
Jason, you sound like you're a boss, man. Thank you so much. What a great introduction. Happy to be here today. Happy Tuesday to everybody. My story is coming out of Tupelo, Mississippi. And if you ask me why Mississippi, the, the thought that Mississippi is now looking at legalization and creating um, regulations around legalization in the state just really blows me away. And so um, we have Natalie Bonner. She's in the audience. Susan, if you can make sure you bring her up because she's going to weigh in. She's in Mississippi. And um, let me let's go. So Tupelo City Council will meet on Thursday to finalize their guidelines for the cultivation and sale of medical marijuana within the city limits. The city proposed medical cannabis ordinance approved by the Tupelo Planning Committee on Monday and set to be discussed by the city council on Thursday. The 25-page ordinance details the medical marijuana industry's footprint inside Tupelo and includes regulations like where growers can locate their facilities, the size of the dispensary parking lots, to what can and cannot be included on cannabis signage. So let's start with the growers and where can you locate your facilities. Following the state regulations, the city places dispensaries, research, and testing facilities under commercial or mixed-use zones, while both processing and cultivation facilities will go into agricultural zones. The city's ordinance, which follows the state's base regulations, prohibits facilities from locating within 1,000 feet of protected places, including churches, schools, and child care centers. Dispensaries also cannot locate within, <clears throat> pardon me, 1,500 feet of other dispensaries. The city's ordinance further prohibits facilities from locating within 1,000 feet of funeral homes and, co and correctional facilities. City planner Jenny Savley said the city's reasoning for the addition was because both facilities also provide religious services. However, if you do, if you're able to get a written permission from a protected place, a facility can reduce their buffer by 500 feet. If passed as is, the city's rules would prohibit facilities from locating within the Fair Park subdivision, which seems to be like this new up-and-coming extra protection neighborhood that has mixed-use zoning um, for business as well as residential. Um, Sadly said that agric agricultural zones in the city also function as residential zones. Because of this, the city would further restrict the sizes of cultivation facilities based on canopy size, meaning how much growing space the facility has. Anything under 15,000 square foot would be classified as use by right, but anything over that would need planning committee approval. The city breaks facilities down into six tiers, tier one, 2,000 to 5,000 square feet. Facilities can cap out at 100,000 square feet at tier six. Anything under 1,000 to 2,000 square feet is considered a micro cultivation facility. When it comes to signage, uh, signage under the city proposal has some strict rules and regulations. Um, Sadly says we want to go ahead and get ahead of any signage restrictions if the uh, Mississippi Department of Health doesn't give us any guidance at the time. So basically, cannabis buds and leaves were disallowed. Um, we don't want to see leaves everywhere. Along with cannabis Im imagery, the city also pro prohibits cartoon or other imagery that would attract or appeal to minors. Um, signage cannot advertise claims like not backed by research or used out of context. Out of context, signage placement mostly follows the rules set established by the, the zoning guidelines. Some signs promoting medical cannabis are barred from being located in zones a medical cannabis facility could not locate in, and signs cannot be mobile. They must be on a facility's premise. Um, again, just talking about the council still has to do some work and tweaking on this. They have a working session coming up, but I have Natalie Bonner. Um, Natalie, did, is, do we have her on stage? Yes, I'm here. 
All right, great. Natalie, talk a little bit about just the struggle of getting Mississippi on board. And 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 Mississippi has the issues with, you know, agricultural and as you know, some of the zoning might be an issue when you talk about residential and agriculture. But if you can give us like a little a peek into Mississippi, that'd be great. Yes. Hi, everyone. I'm located here on the Gulf Coast of Mississippi, but um, and we're really excited about implementing our new Medical Cannabis Act. But the problem is a lot of our cities are opting out, even though 74 percent of our citizens did vote for the legalization of cannabis. And everyone knows the history that we went through to finally get uh, our Cannabis Act. But the problem is that they don't um, not it's a problem, in my opinion, is that when they don't, are not allowing vertically integrated businesses to go in and how they are separating um, the dispensaries from um, the grow, that could be problem. That's going to be problematic because a lot of people are interested in um, vertical integration of their businesses and the opt. The way our um, our legislation and our ballot initiative is set, was set up is that even though these cities that do opt out, the citizens can then collect signatures to opt in, uh, to opt back in. So, but unfortunately, a lot of um, confidence in how how our medical cannabis act is going to be executed is um, is being questioned now, just because people feel like their votes don't count here. So the biggest problem that's going to be for our small, uh, the micro growers especially, uh, with this division of residential mixed use and agriculture is finding that location. And I don't know how familiar you are with Tupelo, but it's heavily uh, owned, those lands are heavily owned by the casinos because that's been our uh, bread and butter for so many years. So it's going to be interesting what availability of land use uh, will be for those that are interested in um, opening up dispensaries as well as uh, your micro grows. Man, I'm, uh, you just really nailed it, um, Natalie. And I want you guys to know that Natalie, and um, she um, was our state director for minor, Minorities for Medical Marijuana, and she and a, a team of folks in Mississippi have created an initiative, and they're doing a actual cannabis festival in Biloxi, April 23rd. So kudos to you, Natalie, and, and thank you for jumping on today and just sharing a little bit and giving us an insight of what's happening in Mississippi. Yes, thank you so much. Um, did oh, you, yeah. Natalie? Oh, did you say? Did you say that uh, the voters voted? Seventy-four percent of the voters voted for passing medical cannabis. Yes, seventy-four percent voted, and then there was a loophole found, and our Supreme Court over the Mississippi Supreme Court overturned our vote, um, making it remaining illegal in the state. I, it was just, it blew away our citizens because I was part of the signature collection um, effort. And when they overturned the vote because of a loophole of districting, redlining in my opinion, um, we had to go through another process to get our Medical Cannabis Act and our governor finally signed it almost a year after the citizens had voted for it. Damn, that's crazy. Yeah. So we have little faith in, um, you know, in if what we voted for, you know, the bill changed a lot. We actually had a home grow in our initial, what was initially approved by the voters actually included a home grow uh, component, but it was rewritten um, by, to be more favorable for those legislators. That is terrible. Homegrown, home grow is a line in the sand. Yeah. Sooner or later, Mississippi, you will be burning. 
Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and the biggest impact is with we're right next to Louisiana, of course, and then they're going they're looking at going recreational. So we're going to lose a lot of money and all everyone knows how um poor our state is and how we lack in education and the funding of our educational institutions that, you know, the full legalization of cannabis would have just really helped us tremendously move forward as a state. Well, I hope you have a great festival. Sounds like fun. We're going to keep moving. Up next, we've got what? No, go ahead. Jason. Okay. Up next, we've got Chris Eggers. He is a former reader of your Miranda rights. Reader of your Miranda rights. I can, Chris, can you mute for a second? Chris, can you mute for a second? Former reader of your Miranda rights turned pastor of the reefer. He's a cannabis security consultant at CC Security Solutions. What's your headline today, Chris? My apologies about that. Uh, My headline today comes out of Austin, Texas. And I'd like to start with a quote from the article from uh, Austin Austin EMS Association President Selena Z, who says that almost on every single call, that is when you are uh, interacting with somebody that is having the worst day of their life. To combat these consequences, a longstanding zero-tolerance policy for drug use on the job could be coming to a close for city employees. On Monday, the Austin Public Safety Committee explored the possibility of allowing prescribed cannabis use instead of other drugs such as sleep aids like Ambien. To quote Z, she says, all city employees have alternatives that don't have such traumatic effects. Now, this comes after House Bill 1535 became Texas law back in September. It added post-traumatic stress disorder to a list of qualifying conditions while doubling the amount of THC allowed in cannabis products from one-half to one percent. Terrence Bowe is a patient advocate for Goodblend, one of the only three state-licensed dispensaries, who's a big proponent of this and says that you can— Depending on your level of trauma, you might need more THC. That's when you push back and really get creative with our medicine to push the limits of what that 1% can do. Now, the city of Austin reached out to 20 other cities uh, to look at feedback of how they were dealing with um, consumption uh, off-duty for first responders. Only 14 cities um, responded, and uh, police officers are still not allowed to consume due to a federal firearm law. Um, But of the 14 that responded, Boston uh, allows for off-duty use. This number shows that it will become an issue for more employees and patients in Texas. Um, last month, more than 19,800 patients registered, um, which more than doubled what it was before the expansion in just six months. So I'm excited to see how this shakes out. Um, I think it's, you know, a, a great uh, first step. Um, I think, you know, one of the comments in this article as well was the, the limiting of alcohol consumption prior to a shift, uh, which was eight hours prior to a shift. You're not allowed to consume alcohol in that state. Um, you know, I think it's really important that this is uh, uh, reported on. You know, my experience working in law enforcement, you know, I know that folks were showing up, you know, after a night out of partying, drinking alcohol. Uh, it was like not really a thought, to be honest with you. And I think that, you know, if we can wean away from prescribed um, medications and, and alcohol for folks that are experiencing PTSD, I think that exploring cannabis use, um, you know, off-duty use is going to be is going to be great. So I was excited to share this headline out of Austin, Texas. My name is Chris Eggers, and I'm reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Chris, thanks for bringing this headline. I saw it myself and was reading it, having worked as a wilderness first responder before, and thinking about what the first responders have gone through in this last pandemic, the last couple of years, I mean, the pandemic, the last couple of years, I think this is great movement forward. And I really hope that that continues to happen because so many of us know that you do need a whole plant, some THC in there to help 
Then we, we did a boot camp this past weekend in Connecticut, and we had a couple of first responders there, and they were asking, can we participate in this industry as well as a first responder? So I think um, that's a whole group of people that we sometimes don't recognize the sacrifice, but also their opportunity of, you know, if there are cannabis users, that they want to also maybe be in the ecosystem of cannabis. So this was a dope, dope um, um, article today. Thanks. Yes, it's really great news. And, you know, uh, if you can replace Ambien with cannabis, come on. How did Ambien even get through the FDA? I don't understand. The side effects are so insane. People are walking out. It's like blackout drunk when you're on Ambien. They're sleepwalking and they don't remember what they did. Come on. I'm just so excited for these first responders and them having the freedom and ability to use things that they choose to put in their body as to being opposed to just other choices that they don't would rather choose something else as opposed to. I, you know, the other thing is really their long-term mental health needs to be considered also. I mean, every day that they get called out to work, every day that they're at work, people in emergency rooms and driving, you know, uh, ambulances are dealing with people who are having one of the worst day of their lives. And it's always high drama. It's always very painful. And you end up very drained and exhausted and stressed when you get home. If you don't, implant those memories properly into your brain that's additive and very traumatic to the responder's brain. So having the ability to get home and relax and unwind and deposit the memory in your brain in a healthy way with cannabis is going to protect that first responder and potentially keep them healthy and not only on the job longer, but interacting better with their family and their neighbors. Hey, I got a question. Yeah. Oh, thank you. And Mary, I, knew I love that. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I got a question to that, <clears throat> to that point. So if you're in a state that's medical, would you be able to get a card if there was a PTSD? Would, that, would you consider PTSD maybe being a, uh, a condition as a responder to get your card as, a, an, uh, as an option? In most states, uh, in some states, PTSD is considered one of the diagnoses. But uh, in states where it is not, most of the uh, medical card writers will consider PTSD your quote-unquote chronic pain. It is your pain. And so we base it on a chronic pain diagnosis and prescribe uh, through that diagnosis. Let's keep smoking the news. We've got uh, oh yeah, we got Gretchen Gailey. We we got Gretchen Gailey coming up next. This feisty redhead conservative proudly claims her Mayflower roots and never backs down when challenged by pot-loving liberals across the aisle. The founder of Panoptic Strategies and our very own Washington Insider coming next to the stage. It's Gretchen Gailey. Thank you, Mr. Beck. Uh, my headline today is coming out of marijuana moment. Uh, bipartisan lawmakers file amendments to federal marijuana legalization bill up for a House vote this week. Uh, for those of you who've been living in a hole, the Moore Act is coming up for a vote. Uh, not clear when yet. It'll be either uh, between Wednesday and Friday. They haven't scheduled it. Um, however, what comes along with this 500-page report um, is a bunch of amendments, and that's what people get to do uh, at this current time while it goes through the House Rules Committee. And here are a bunch of the amendments that have been proposed. Uh, Representative Dan Bishop filed an amendment that would require the Transportation Secretary and Attorney General to develop and publish best practices for the recognition and testing of drivers impaired by marijuana before any provision of the legalization bill could take effect. 
Uh, Representative Connor Lamb, one of just six Democrats to vote against the Moore Act before, uh, he put in three amendments. Uh, the first would require the National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health to conduct a study on the impact of the legalization of recreational cannabis by states in the workplace and best practices for employers that are transitioning their policies. Uh, related to the use of recreational cannabis. Uh, the second uh, would make the Secretary of Education conduct a study on the impact of legalization of recreational cannabis. Uh, the third would maintain enhanced federal penalties for distributing more than five grams of marijuana to a person under the age of 21 and for distributing more than five grams of marijuana with 1,000 feet of a school. Uh, Representative Josh Gottheimer uh, who did vote in favor of it last time, wants $10 million for the National Highway uh, Traffic Safety Administration to conduct research. Uh, Pete Stober, he wants an amendment so immigrants could be deported for driving under the influence of marijuana. Uh, it goes on and on and on, but I will stop there for us to debate a bit. Uh, but this this is what happens when you have a 500-page bill, and that's why you need to do things in a piecemeal approach if you want to get cannabis done the way that you want to. If you don't, if you want the feds to be in, in control and do whatever the hell they want, sure, go for all these ridiculous uh, glacier size bills uh, that just hide bullshit all over the place and are going to keep legalization from truly happening. Uh, this is Gretchen for Safe, uh, State of Campus News Hour, Pass Safe Banking. Yeah, Pass Safe Banking. That amendment that Dan Bishop put in to have to have a study completed about uh, recognition and testing of drivers impaired, that might as well just, that that's the end of it. I mean, come on. I, I just don't get how legalization all of a sudden brings this problem on. I mean, we've had people consuming cannabis since the 50s, 60s, 70s, and even before then, and no one, and drug driving has never been a situation in any of these decades, including the 70s and 80s, and so why all of a sudden now? It's something is totally fucking beyond me. Well, it's just and when a you get wrench in there, right? when you get amendments like these things added, it takes people who actually would have voted for it, who care about the issue, exactly. may now turn and vote against it. So, yes. I, I will be surprised, highly surprised, if the Moore Act passes this week. Exactly, it's not going to pass. It's, it's, it's called, not it's called pork. It's just you put all this extra stuff in there that doesn't even belong or that doesn't make sense. And yeah, just to make sure it doesn't pass. Anyway, and all we, these amendments were introduced by Democrats. Gretchen. Uh, no, Republican Dan Bishop, North Carolina. No, 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 Susan. No. A lot of this shit was put in there by Democrats, not just Republicans. Okay, Bishop well, is that's a Republican, the... but a lot of the other studies and things that they want first are from Democrats. That's the deal killer, though. Anyway, that we're. <laughs> We've reached the end of the show. It was really good. If you missed any of it, make sure to catch the replay on Clubhouse or find us a few hours after the show anywhere you get your podcasts or on our YouTube channel. And if you like the content, please subscribe and leave a review. A big thank you to all of the correspondents that comb through all the headlines each day to bring us just what we need to know. A big thank you to Jason Beck for co-producing the show and our pinup girl, Liz Rogan. And thank you, audience, for being our eyes and ears when there's news in your city, county, state, or country, your addition to our show makes the State of Cannabis News Hour news you can trust. You've been tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where we collectively move policy forward in an inclusive and sustainable way. Start your morning on a high note and join us every weekday at 9 a.m. Pacific time for the State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose.
Say goodbye, Jason. Goodbye. Goodbye.